Hello, welcome back again for another exciting episode with the Nailed It Ortho podcast team. We have another great one in store for you today. Again, my name is Dr. Jay Fitz, and my uh, partner in crime here is Dr. Uh, Wendell Cole. Some people know me as Cody, but most people say Dr. Wendell Cole, you know? He's a complicated guy. He has a lot of <laughs> a lot of names. Um, <laughs> so, guys, I, I think this is a good one. This is a very... Uh, high yield subject is something that you'll see pretty often if you you ever go to a spine clinic. Uh, so for residents, for med students, attendings, I think this is a great one for you. I'm gonna let uh, Cody get to get this show going for us. Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, this is actually a really good episode. We talk about cervical myelopathy. We actually um, have one of our good guests, actually Dr. Matthew Syriac, who happens to be one of my attendings. Um, at my residency program, one of our spine surgeons, um, he did a really good job uh, talking about cervical myelopathy, explaining it um, in a in a very uh, proficient uh, manner. Uh, he did a, a, a very good job. Uh, just kind of a, a little bit more about him. He actually uh, got his uh, med school degree from um, Albany uh, Medical College of Georgia. He did his surgery at George Washington University um, Hospital. He did his orthopedic surgery residency there. And then he did his spine fellowship actually at Emory uh, University in Atlanta. Uh, he also holds an MBA as well. So he's an MD as well as a, he has his master's of, in business. And, um, you know, guys, without further ado, and enjoy this conversation on uh, cervical myelopathy. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So the first question we actually have is you recently finished fellowship, you know, not too long ago. And, you know, now you're attending, you're living the attending life. And we kind of just want to know, like, to you right now, what's the best part of being an attending? Well, you know, you have a lot of autonomy. You get to make the decisions and you train really hard to get there and you make the decisions and you help people. So it's kind of nice. Finally, you have the autonomy and you've spent years training and then you know, the surgery, you're doing the surgery and you're helping people. So the autonomy and then second is, you know, you have your own call schedule in terms of time. It's great. Okay. And on the flip side of that, what would you say are some of the unexpected things that you're starting to notice now as now that you're, uh, you know, attending versus when you were a fellow? I think the first two years, I mean, I'll be, in my, I'll be two years out now, but uh, the first year was very stressful in the sense of your board collection and then uh, complications, especially in spine, you know, is uh, high risk. So some of the complications are devastating. So you quickly realize that uh, maybe, you know, that you're responsible for a lot of that and stuff can go wrong very quickly. So uh, something very stressful, but then you get used to it. Yeah, what's the curve on that? It was about four months of stress. It was about a whole year of stress, and then you kind of got used to it. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's really a whole year, maybe a little bit more. It's really the board collection period that, that's stressful. <laughs> right. You know, anything that happens, it's, it's all documented, and it's a, little, it's a stressful. I think it's a year, year and a half, and then it's just kind of you just get used to it all. Right. And then, you know, our third question is, what made you choose spine out of, you know, all the orthopedic uh, specialties out there? What made you go into spine? Like, is this something you went into residency knowing you wanted to do? Or did you just take spine yeah. call and loved it? Like, what, what made you spine? I think, uh, yeah, it was, I actually went into residency. I think I wanted to do sports medicine, but I changed. I think my third year, 
actually because I was on the spine rotation. It was such a good rotation at where I did residency in DC, GW, that uh, two of my mentors were a great influence. And so, you know, if you have good mentors who like what they do and how they do it, you become interested in it. Okay. All right. Well, good deal. I think we're going to go ahead and jump into the case. Oh, yeah. On the case here. So we have a uh, 56-year-old male who presents to your clinic complaining of problems with balance, not being able to button his shirt, and just saying that he's had some progressive neck pain over the past five years. Uh, from this point, how would you, I guess, how would you approach uh, this patient at this point? Yeah, so typically when someone presents with, you know, it, uh, if you're talking about cervical myelopathy, that's a clinical syndrome of someone presenting with symptoms of really often the first symptoms that you see in cervical myelopathy is someone, they really, you know, it's, 56 is relatively young for myelopathy. That's someone who probably has congenital stenosis, meaning that they're born with a smaller canal. So they're having to start these symptoms earlier. Typically, cervical myelopathy is usually seen for me in 60 and uh, sometimes often 70. So uh, 50s and 40s are relatively young, but 56, I guess it's in the middle too. But um, basically, so when someone complains of, and they never, you know, very vague, they just think they're getting older, that they're dropping stuff and their hand dexterity, such as buttoning stuff, is decreasing to me. The first thing I think of, oh, is there any cord compression going on that's causing this? So I typically, you know, first start with further questioning of if there are any problems with their balance especially going up and down stairs. Do they have to hold on to the rails more? If they close their eyes, like in the shower, do they feel like they're going to fall? And then, you know, and then the exam, uh, for me, the first thing I look for is a Hoffman sign, which I guess we'll go over later. And then uh, I order uh, an x-ray. An x-ray typically will show some spondylosis, which is basically degenerative changes, disc degeneration, some anterior spurs, and, you know, the facets are degenerative. And then you have to get an MRI to really see if there's any cord compression. And from there, it's, if it's very mild, like, like this person, you can tell them, describe the natural history of cervical myelopathy and then kind of watch it. Or if it's more severe, then you can tell them, look, you know, I wouldn't wait too long on this, but we should probably think about surgery at some point. Right. So, so let's rewind. So for those listening, I mean, I know what is cervical myelopathy and kind of like, how does it progress? Like what, what it like, how does cervical- it, um, the cervical myelopathy just means, so there's a lot of causes of if you look at cervical myelopathy. Myelopathy just the clinical syndrome that presents due to cord compression, basically uh, upper uh, motor and lower motor neuron track, long track signs such as, you know, balance, hand dexterity, hyperreflexia due to, you know, compression of those long tracks or the cord. And that's basically cervical myelopathy. Uh, there are a lot of causes of it. The most common cause, which we're you know, often see is cervical spondylotic myelopathy. That just means myelopathy due to spondylosis, which is degenerative changes. Other causes of cervical myelopathy, you can get epidural abscess, you can get a tumor. I see it, you know, in trauma call when, you know, someone, a car accident and cervical fracture, uh, facet fracture dislocations, they compress the cord, that's myelopathy. The most common, what you're going to see is cervical spondylotic myelopathy or CSM, which is due to the degenerative changes. And that's the most common cause. Okay. And yeah, so I'm on that same picture. So it's so many different, um, like you say, so many different causes. And that's why I was really looking forward to this talk to see kind of how you go about approaching, trying to to get to the bottom of that. And not even that it's so many different causes, but it's just presents in so many different ways. Um, 
I guess, you know, what are some of the more subtle signs? I know you said sometimes like hand clumps in this, and I'm guessing you're looking for maybe some neck pain. Uh, is there anything else to, to kind of look out for when you when that patient first comes in that should kind of key you in like, okay, this is something I need to, to rule out? Uh, yeah, it's usually that they complain of dropping objects is the number one. They don't know why, but the cup falls out of their hand. Uh, their handwriting can change. Cell phone drops out. Uh, buttoning their shirt. Uh, pulling up the zipper. It's just for some reason, it just feels clumsy, right? They can't really put a word. It's kind of vague. And then that's the first sign. And then you can, as you progress, you can get gait instability, which, you know, they just feel unsteady. They don't know, especially going up and down stairs and starting to hold on to the rail more. You know, all the other stuff like urinary retention and all, that's like very, very late, very severe cord compression. It's really the hand dexterity and the clumsiness. And then the gait instability is the first things I look for. And, right. you know, that's when you start looking for cervical myelopathy. I mean, the differential diagnosis is, you know, most common is that degenerative thing. But then they have severe pain or IV drug use or you think about epidural abscesses. But those are typically presenting to the ER, right? The trauma stuff presents to the ER, which you're seeing clinic in a different setting. And that's usually the degenerative, the slow thing that you see over time. And that, that that's what you're seeing in clinic typically. And then if there's a younger patient that I have seen a couple of times, present like multiple sclerosis, right? That's a demyelinating disease. They present with, you know, problems, sometimes dropping stuff, gait and all that stuff. But that's in a younger population, typically a female, you know, 30s, sometimes 40s that presents with vague symptoms of being off balance. People think they're drunk. But that's more rare, right? And cervical spondylite myelopathy is more common than MS. Right. And and so like when you're, you've gotten the history. So when we're doing the physical exam, what are some of the like, important things that we want to do an important test that we want to, uh, that we want to so, check off know, or like what are the-, the first thing, you know, is the motor strength exam and a quick comment about neck pain. A lot, some of these, a lot of these patients older with cervical myelopathy often don't have neck pain. Uh, I mean, that is there almost everyone has some neck pain, but oftentimes that's not their main complaint. Um, now, if they have, at the same time, radiculopathy, which is different than myelopathy, radiculopathy is when you have nerve root compression, not the actual spinal cord, and with presence of radiculitis, meaning that pain shooting down the arm in the dermatomal pattern, and also, you know, that's that radiculopathy associated with a specific dermatomal uh, weakness, like a C4-5, you know, disc herniation resulting in, you know, on the left side of cervical radiculopathy. They can have what you call, this is more technical, myeloradiculopathy, the myelopathic symptoms, which are the cord compression systems such as, you know, the diffuse hand numbness, uh, non-dermatoral pattern numbnesses, and then also some radiculopathy, maybe some shooting pain. And then neck pain too, you can get it because neck pain, you know, if you have arthritis, cervical spondylosis, you can get neck pain. But some of my patients with the myelopathy don't have like, neck pain is not their number one complaint, which is interesting. But some of them it is. So uh, so that's that kind of the, the history compared to, you know, your typical lumbar stenosis where they present with pain as the main complaint, where sometimes myelopathy patients present with that, you know, the vague symptoms of diffuse hand numbness, non-dermatomal, dropping stuff. When you get to the exam, and for me, classic exam starts with kind of, um, I start with the, the motor exam, you know, and you grade it in terms of, you know, for me, C5 to T1 myotomes, basically, deltoid biceps, triceps, wrist flexion extension grip and interossei. And the first thing for me to go out on that is actually the interossei and the grip. The upper ones, the deltoid and the biceps, they never, they're usually, they're pretty strong and you don't see it, a true deficit of it. It's very, very severe, right? I recently had a lady that was 83, fell, had, you know, uh, dinged up the cord and presented in a wheelchair with weakness upper and lower extremity. 
But uh, typically, the ones that walk in the office just have that slight weakness in the grip. You ask them to squeeze as hard as you can. With, if you can pull your fingers out, that means that to me is a four, which means you know it's a subjective grading scale. And then the interosseous is the other one. You ask them to abduct their fingers as much as possible. So that's that. And then you look for um, the Hoffman's. If you look at the studies, Hoffman's is seen about in uh, 60 or 70 percent of patients with myelopathy. And basically, the way you do it is you have them IOPS, and it's hard for them to get them to relax. So I told them to just put their hand down the lap and relax. And as you take the middle finger and you flick the distal phalanx just with your thumb, and if you see the index or thumb uh, flex, just flicker, that means that's a um, Hoffman sign. That just means that when there's a spinal cord compression, that reflex arc is not being regulated by the upper motor neuron due to the cord compression, so that you get that. Uh, that's bad. And then I also look for the inverted brachioradialis reflex. You tap the brachioradialis and what it usually does is you get a slight, you know, wrist, uh, the brachioradialis uh, works and you get a slight wrist like flexion. But inverted is when you have the same, the, uh, the thumb and the index finger flex. Uh, so that's the inverted brachioradialis. And then hyperreflexia again, due to loss of upper motor neuron control, that you tap the biceps most common and you get a plus three, you know, that really jumps and then you get patella hyperreflexia. And then you can go to the next ones. I don't often test these as much as Babinski. You know, you stroke the lateral aspect of the foot and then the great toe extends instead of typically normally we should flex it. Um, and then oftentimes if they have a little bit of gait and we're not sure, I have them do tandem walk or toe to heel walk where they ask them to walk like, you know, the police make them do with one foot in front of the other and often they can't do it. That's the first time they notice that they have this gait instability. And you can do a Romberg test. I often don't do it, but that's just, when you have them stand with their hands, arms fell forward, and you ask them to close their eyes and they start falling over, that's due to the fact that cord compression, you lose proprioception from your feet. And when you have your eyes open, you compensate, but as soon as you close the eyes, you lose that. So these patients, if they have the optical plane in the shower, that when they close your eyes, they get real like about to fall over. So that's what that is. And then, you know, you can do, if there's radiculopathy, you can do a Sperling's test where you, you know, uh, extend the neck and turn towards that side and turn. And basically you're pinching the nerve in that frame and they get that shooting arm pain down the side. But that, that's the patient with that cervical myeloradiculopathy, the radiculopathy symptoms. So that's basically it for the exam. Really, it's the Hoffman's the number one thing I look for. And then grading of the motor strength and then, you know, reflexia and grip. Yeah, I think I think that was like a super comprehensive, great uh, physical exam talk right there. Like I remember, I was even doing some questions on it, and pretty much some all those big things that you said were all like in the stem of the question to say, you know, plus the reflexes, positive Hoffman's, and uh, you know, you know, maybe pop like you know, uh, proprioception issues. So I think that was a great, a yeah. great overview of physical exams. Absolutely. And that the shower, the, the shower part that you added. And I actually think I had a patient who, who mentioned that. And I wonder now, I'm like, huh, should I have been thinking so? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the issue with this stuff is, right, when you get older, people equate everything to age and balance issues. And there could be a lot of cause of balance issues, right? I see a lot of patients present. I get referred over from other people, but it could be due to vertigo. It could be a vestibular problem, you know, or something else. Sometimes, or sometimes they're just you know, uh, a lot of other issues, but basically from our standpoint, you do our exam. And for me, the next step is look, I look for, uh, sometimes the balance would be issues could be from the cerebellum or higher up, right? Ataxia, but that's a more serious tumor in the cerebellum or herniation, that kind of stuff. 
TRI malformation stuff, but those are more rare. And it's typically in the realm of neurosurgery, but I still see a lot of that stuff. And if I do see it, you know, if I, there's nothing on the cervical MRI and I'm concerned, I will get a brain MRI. They had that, you know, other symptoms. But typically, you know, for me, the next step from the, after the x-ray is to get a, an MRI. And from a spine surgeon standpoint, your, your goal is to rule out what you can treat or help with, and that's cervical cord compression or the myelopathy. So you get that cervical MRI to make sure there's nothing there. And if they have significant gait problems in this, and they have hyperreflexia, you could start talking about thoracic myelopathy, but we'll leave that alone. That's very rare. Okay. And so we kind of talked about it. Uh, I know we mentioned it earlier. So just take a step back on the x-rays. What x-rays are you getting exactly? And kind of what are you looking for? Uh, well, I, 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 I only get uh, cervical AP and lateral. I mean, AP, honestly, you can, if you're looking, I just look for overall alignment. If it looks okay, make sure they're not coronally imbalanced with the head tilted towards one side. That kind of stuff. And really, it's the lateral. I look at their overall alignment, right? Uh, I look at it. They're not. Make sure they're not in significant kyphosis because that determines, you know, your surgical planning. If they're in a lot of kyphosis, you want to, you know, you can do the C2 to C7 uh, angle to make sure they're in, you know, normal lordosis, which in you know most patients can vary, but it can be between as you age, the lordosis decreases. But typically, if you're 50, it should be between you know 20 and 30 degrees. Uh, so, but a lot of patients after 56, you're just neutral, which is fine. But that's what I look for on the x-ray. I mean, you see the spondylotic changes, which spondylosis just means degeneration. So you'll see those bone spurs anteriorly, the disc degeneration, and almost everyone you x-ray them after age 50 or 60, after 60, especially will have some of those mild disc degeneration and anterior osteoporosis. That doesn't mean you need to rush into and say that there's cord compression there, but those are bony degenerative changes. And then really it's the alignment that I look for. And then, uh, so that, that's what I do for an x-ray. And then the next step for me, the most important is to get an MRI. And the MRI really shows you, you know, the cord compression, nerve root compression. And basically you look for, uh, if there is cord compression, you look for that. Everyone looks for myelomalacia. What is it? Well, it's basically a radiological term just saying there's T2 hyperintensity or brightness. That just means that the cord's being compressed and there's that signal change in the axons. And that's what that is. And you'll see that that area that's the most tightest. Okay. Um, and also, I was because I was doing some reading, is there is there any, like, I, I guess, measurements that you do trying to find out about the size of the canal? I saw that, you know, some researchers saw different, you know, if, if it's less than a certain number, then you have to worry more about stenosis and different things like that. Is there anything like that that you kind of take into, uh, into play with this type of issue as well? Yeah, I mean, for me, I I don't really use any uh, ratios, but if you ask a lot of radiologists, in a patient with congenital stenosis, once they get to less than seven millimeters measured in the A to P, they start, you see a lot of radiologists with document. This is different. As spinal surgeons, in general, we don't, I don't often go by the numbers. I look at it, and I look for that cord compression, and I, and I don't write a number, but radiologists write a number. But to them, if you ask many of them, it's less than seven uh, millimeters means that there's, you know, significant cord compression. So they, they write that number in there. Um, a normal spinal canal typically is like 17 millimeters. So once you get to that seven, that's considered for a lot of them considered to be, you know, pretty tight, pretty uh, uh, significant uh, stenosis. Um, right. So 
only time I get CTs is sometimes for surgical planning. Really, if I'm doing, you know, a posterior fusion or laminoplasty, I just want to look at the lateral masses, calculate how long my screws are, that kind of stuff. And then if I'm doing like a, a uh, if I'm doing an anterior approach, you worry about, this is more technical, ossified posterior ligamentum, OPLLO. Um, that just means um, that can calcify and an anterior approach can be, uh, get you in trouble because you can get a dural tear very quickly. So this is just to rule that out. If you see that big kind of black line on the MRI anteriorly, you worry about OPLL, then you get the CT scan. But I, I have been getting CT scans more often just for surgical planning, but that's not really, you know, required. You can go with the MRI. And then, you know, if they can't tolerate an MRI, I have had a bunch of patients with pacemakers uh, get or had a spinal cord stimulator and put somewhere else. And uh, um, they need a CT myelogram, which is basically, you know, you they, uh, inject a dye into the uh, epidural space and then have them lay in the CT scanner and, uh, Trendelenburg and have it float up and then to get a CT scan to see the, the dye and look for cord compression. That was done a lot, a long time ago in the past, not a long time ago, but a lot of people did that. Uh, but often I don't do that as much unless, unless they have a contraindication, such as a pacemaker or they've had a lot of previous neck surgery and there's too much hardware artifact that a CT myelogram is very useful. Right. Now, now when you're looking at these, you know, when you're looking at these films, whether MRI, whatever, or, or, you know, the different imaging, is there any way, that you are able to tell, or are there any clues that you can tell whether or not, hey, this is something that's probably just a congenitally narrow canal versus, you know, this is probably something that has to do with some spondylosis. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, classically they, they talked about, you know, the, the Pavlov-Torloff uh, ratio. Um, I just honestly kind of look at it and I, I, and you can tell if you, I guess this is a bad way to explain it. Um, uh, you can tell by looking at it that, you know, it's just narrow diffusely all the way from like C2 to C7 compared to what you've seen before, you know, but the actual ratio is 0.8, meaning that if you take a ratio of the vertebral body to the uh, anterior posterior uh, canal diameter, if it's less than 0.8, that means that they have congenital stenosis. And that's the uh, poor uh, Pavlov ratio. So basically you measure uh, anterior posterior on the lateral x-ray is basically what the original study described it as a uh, anterior to posterior on the vertebral body. And then you do anterior posterior in the canal from the posterior vertebral body to the, uh, back to the spinal laminar line. And you divide the AP, the diameter of the canal by the diameter AP of the vertebral body. If it's less than 0.8, that means that they're congenitally stenotic. But oftentimes I look at the MRI and I can just, I guess this is a bad way to ask most surgeons ask them trying to define congenital stenosis. A lot of times it's just looking at it and you've seen enough of it and you can kind of define, you know, that the, the CSF space is just so small around that cord, you know, on that T2 sagittal. Right. Okay. And, and so I guess transitioning into now the treatment options, and what patients are you going for non-operative treatment? I guess first off, and then we'll, we'll go ahead and go on operative after that. But what are, what are some of the non-operative indications uh, yeah. and, and treatments? So if you, if you look at, you know, how, how you uh, grade it, you know, they, they, I think it's one of the previous old ortho bullets questions. We don't use it as much as a neuric scale. And I basically looked at the patient's ambulatory status. If they were grade four, which is very severe, that was wheelchair bound. By the time you get to that, that's 
that's trouble, right? If you just look at gate, because that's one of the final things that's there in the wheelchair. And then the Japanese came out with the Japanese uh, Orthopedic Association scale for cervical spondylotic myelopathy. And basically what they did was like the hand dexterity, upper extremity function, rather than just ambulation or lower extremity function. And they found, you know, they initially came out with it with chopstick use. If they can use the chopsticks well, that means it's normal. But then in America, Benzo modified it, and this is the most common use of the modified Japanese Orthopedic Association scale to look at, you know, the the uh, upper extremity dexterity. So instead of chopsticks, use of spoon, use able to button your shirt, and that's really it. So it, it, it's based on that, and that's how in research people grade spondylotic myelopathy with a modified Japanese scale. And you know, the higher the score, the better. The lower the score, the worse. But if it's mild. That means, you know, they have a little bit of hand numbness on uh, the fingertips and dropping stuff here and there. You look at the MRI and the cord compression is, you know, there's a little bit of cord compression, no myelomalacia, meaning no T2 uh, uh, changes. Then you can just, um, in those, I tell them, hey, look, you got a little bit of cord compression. You have some early signs of cervical myelopathy. Uh, I'm going to watch you, either see you, uh, see you every year and just kind of watch you and not offer to management in terms of physical therapy and stuff. I tell them not to do any extensive neck hyperextension and therapy and stuff, but just basically gait training and maybe upper extremity strengthening, uh, cervical isometrics without any traction, that kind of stuff. And then if they get, you know, a little bit of that neck pain or radiculopathy, you can use NSAIDs, that kind of stuff. And you see them every 12 months and tell them what symptoms to watch for, really. That's why I tell them, look, if you're starting to drop stuff more, if you're, um, you know, balance is getting off. And I tell them to avoid high-risk activities such as, you know, uh, uh, skiing, that kind of stuff. They fall the wrong way. You know, they hyper their neck, they can get paralyzed. But driving, all the normal stuff's all fine. And people always ask, am I at a higher risk for uh, being paralyzed? Yes, you're slightly higher risk than me, depending on how much core, uh, tight the canal is. But in general, you should be able to do almost all most activities. Um, except for, you know, skiing is higher-risk activities. So, um I see some younger patients with, you know, this cervical stenosis or a little bit of tightness. They say, oh, can I stop doing everything? I'm like, well, you're a slightly high risk. It doesn't mean you should stop everything, but maybe like extreme mountain biking, that kind of stuff. And basically just watch. I don't use a collar or anything for this. Some of the studies recommended collar. So they don't hyperextend like a soft collar, but I don't know many people that do that. Basically, you know, just see them every, every year and kind of watch their progression of myelopathic symptoms and tell them the natural history of cervical myelopathy, the fact that they do fine for a while with no change in symptoms, et cetera. And then they suddenly, you know, have a sudden change in symptoms. All of a sudden they're fine for one year, five years. And all of a sudden they notice, I don't know, doc, my drafting stuff more, my balance changed. So it's a stepwise rather than a continual gradual decline. It's a stepwise, meaning they're fine for a while and sudden drop in function. And then they're fine for at that level for a while and sudden drop. And that's based on older studies. Oh, I was going to agree. Yes, yeah, so I was seeing that same thing in some of the uh, studies that we, we read to kind of prep for this case. Is like you're saying, it, it tends to uh, progress over time and, like you said, kind of have sudden drops and just kind of go back and forth that, that way. But that's basically it. You just kind of watch it. Everyone's concerned, right? They see this MRI, the radiologist has read it as cord compression. What do I do? Am I going to be paralyzed? And you just kind of tell the natural history, be careful. Try to live your life and then see me in a year and we'll keep track of it. If there, if there is enough cervical myelopathic symptoms, I said, look, I don't know when, but at some point you may need surgery because that's the only way to prevent further progression. All right. And on, on to that, that's what I was going to say next. So what, how do you choose, you know, what 
as far as what surgery you're going to do, uh, what approach you're going to take, and uh, you know, just overall, how are the outcomes normally uh, in a in best case scenario? Yeah. So typically, I uh, if it's one, two, or three level, I would do an anterior approach unless they have uh, OPLL, ossified posterior ligamentum. Um, in that sense, uh, the ossified posterior longitudinal ligament. Uh, in that case, I don't go anterior because as soon as you burr through that. Uh, ossified ligamentum, you go right on a dura and you get a CSF leak and those are hard to repair anteriorly. So typically one or two levels, uh, one to three levels, I'll do anterior just because it, uh, the recovery besides for dysphagia is, is quick. Uh, I can do just a single transverse neck incision and take care of uh, most of it. Uh, so, the, well, you know, the questions on the OIT are typically, you know, when you do anterior versus uh, Posterior. Well, basically, if it's one to three levels of compression now on the test, they're going to give you pretty more um, um, simpler stuff. They'll give you one to two levels with, you know, t- uh, with the uh, cervical spondylosis, with the bone spurs that are touching the cord. Those two levels, you know, uh, most likely you need an anterior approach, ACDF. Um, if there's stuff that's jutting behind the body, retrovertebral body, I don't know if they ask you this, that's one of the indications for doing a corpectomy. But if they have a lot more, then they're not going to give you the three level, right? Because when three level, you can go anterior or posterior. But once you get to four levels, uh, posterior works better. You can either do uh, laminectomy and fusion um, or laminoplasty. And, you know, I do a lot of laminoplasties, but basically what determines if you can do a posterior versus uh, anterior, posterior, when there's, you know, a four level of compression is the kyphosis. If you have less than um, 10 degrees of uh, rigid kyphosis, then you can do posterior. And the way I determine it is I do the modified uh, K2 line. Basically, I draw a line from C2, the center on the MRI, originally described in the x-ray, but I just do it on the MRI. You can do it on x-ray too to the uh, center of the canal at C7, if that line is not touching any back of any of the posterior vertebral bodies, that means that the way posterior decompression works is you're allowing the cord to drift back. Mm-hmm. So if it's less than 10 degrees of uh, rigid cervical kyphosis, then you can do posterior um, for, you know, typically on the test is four levels or more. And they're not going to make you choose between a cervical laminectomy infusion versus laminoplasty on the test. And really making you decide between anterior posterior, and that really is determined by how much if there's a lot of kyphosis greater than 10 degrees, then you have to go anterior. And let's say it's a lot of kyphosis and multiple levels, then you have to go anterior and posterior rather than just anterior. So it's one to two levels, of, uh, and they have a little bit of kyphosis, or they're normal in one or two levels, you can they're gonna, you know, the answers are in ACDF on the test. But if they have, usually they're gonna give you four levels and somewhat neutral alignment or not kyphotic, then you can do posterior either. They're not gonna make you choose, but typically uh, laminectomy infusion or laminoplasty, but basically something posterior. And most people do laminectomy infusion. Laminoplasty is done much more in Japan, but we, uh, I do quite a bit of laminoplasty. And, and what are the advantages for some of the, the different uh, the different like anterior approaches, like the advantage and disadvantage of each, like, you know, range of motion and different things like that. Well, you know, the main advantage for me anterior is anterior is a, such a smooth procedure and the recovery for me compared to a posterior laminectomy infusion, they have a lot less pain to me in my hands, a lot less blood loss, uh, lower infection rate. 
and you know, and a decrease in my hands, but the newer studies show that it's equal uh, C5 palsy rate. So I love anterior if I can do it. Um, but um, the, the biggest downside is the dysphagia, meaning you have to be careful with the exposure. And a lot of patients, I tell them, you know, you're going to have a sore throat for two weeks and a lump in your throat, uh, that kind of feeling for up to six weeks. I'm going to say dysphagia if you look at the studies resolved by, you know, three months, but that's the biggest factor. So in some of these elderly people who already have a lot of dysphagia or someone else, maybe going in the back may be the better choice. But I often, one, two level disease, uh, and even up to three, for me, I do an anterior approach. And uh, posterior, you're cutting through all that posterior neck, neck musculature and then dissecting. They, they hurt. And uh, the recovery is a little bit longer. But the, uh, the, the advantage is that you don't have dysphagia and um, you can take care of multiple levels with it, right? In ACDF, I typically don't do more than three levels, but uh, you can do four, five, six, seven levels with a you know laminectomy and posterior fusion or just a laminoplasty. It works well. And um, so that's it. And then the studies show that anterior and posterior are equal in terms of C5 palsy, but some of the older studies all show that posterior approach always had a higher rate of C5 palsy, which is basically you wake up with this deltoid weakness, meaning that it's usually unilateral. They, after surgery, it takes up to 74 hours, 72 hours for it to develop. They wake up and they can't really abduct their shoulder. That deltoid's weak and they're like, what's going on? So that's what that, uh, that is. And the older studies showed that, you know, it's a higher risk. And then anterior, you know, people, uh, the dreaded recurrent laryngeal nerve injury uh, from an anterior approach, um, they present with hoarseness and et cetera. So, but uh, that's usually seen when you're at the lower levels, especially at 7-1, sometimes 6-7. And that's why typically these people always used to go on the left side, but the newer studies show that there's no difference between going a right-sided or left-sided anterior cervical approach in terms of risk of recurrent laryngeal nerve injury or, you know, the palsy uh, resulting in hoarseness and sometimes some dysphagia. All right. Well, I mean, I think that was pretty good. Um, I thought that was really good. So I don't know. I'm gonna ask a question. I usually that we usually don't ask, but I think it's helpful. What is something you know? Some of your residents, or you know, some of your newer residents, or some of your colleagues, maybe that you just feel like some people kind of either forget or overlook when it comes to this type of pathology. Well, I think you know, spine, especially in orthopedics, it's sometimes you don't understand it. Uh, where compared to our neurosurgery colleagues, they get experience in that by year one or two, right? For us, it's, you know, it's more the senior residents or higher up. When you see, it, you know, when I was the first second year, I dreaded the spine stuff. But once you get the understanding of it, it's kind of simple. Basically, cervical myelopathy to me is people are like, what is that? It's an interesting term. All it means is cord compression. Basically, you just look for the basics. You know, the hand dexterity, the dropping objects. Just watch out for that the gait instability it's not just due to old age but maybe due to that it's easily treatable nowadays with modern you know surgeries you can do it well and efficiently so that's the thing to watch out for you know and some one of the newer studies actually show that patients with hip fractures 20 percent actually have cervical uh spondylotic myelopathy and that may be the reason why they fell and eventually sustained that hip fracture and the reason for why they're post-op they're using the walker and the balance issues that was one of the studies in fine recently it's interesting. So it's there. So you want to watch out for that. And basically, you know, look for the Hoffman's and the decreased grip and maybe the hand dexterity. And it's easy to pick up. 
And uh, are there a lot of people that have those symptoms and don't have any cord compression yet? It's pretty easy to diagnose. You get an MRI and you see the cord compression. I think it's relatively simple. Okay. Well, perfect, Dr. Syriac. I, before we go, I would like to ask you, uh, for our listeners, is there any way that our listeners can reach out to you, whether it may be some of your social media handles or your uh, email address or anything like that where we have where people can? Yeah, just yeah, just, just email me with questions, uh, you know, msyriac at tulane.edu. That's M-C-Y-R-I-A-C at tulane.edu. Yeah, feel free to ask uh, questions. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed Ortho Podcast with Dr. Syriac. I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode and learned a lot. I know I definitely do it, and especially listening to this again, I know I jotted down some more notes. Um, so, guys, don't forget to subscribe. Uh, go and rate us in iTunes and follow us at Nailed It Ortho at Instagram. And if you have any questions, you can also email us at nailedortho at gmail.com. And until next time.